and welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our wonderful radio syndicates, or perhaps on the podcast at greenmajority.ca. But today, we're focusing on that CIUT.FM because they are uh, the incredible radio station that allows us to run, and this is our fundraising show for CIUT. So off the bat, I want to thank uh, Nancy, Lauren, and William for their donations already. Again, we're recording this on Wednesday, so more donations can still come. Will still be coming in. So if you, if you've already donated or you donated, and you want us to give you a shout out in the future. Uh, I'm very happy to give you another shout out next week. Let me know. Shoot, shoot it, go on the contact us page. Let us know, and we'll give you a shout out next week as well. Uh, but to donate, you need to go to ciut.fm and click donate at the top right corner. Uh, we are trying to get to a hundred thousand dollars in this in this whole campaign, and. From Wednesday, it was sitting around $35,000, I believe. But again, this is on Friday, so we're probably so much further along. Uh, so thank you so much for joining already. We got a, a great show for you, and we've got a packed house today. We're joined by both Lauren and Saren and Dave, of course. Uh, so welcome, everyone, to the show. Packed house is because, of course, we're not in the same building. <laughs> that's true. Packed house is a bit of a, meta- is a metaphor that's not working perfectly, I understand. <laughs> It's nice to be back and have my voice heard again. Yeah, it's good to it's good to be on the show with you again, Saren. It's Lauren, by the way, for anybody who's wondering what this disembodied voice is coming forth from your radio. It's it's Lauren. <laughs> Hi, happy to be yeah, here with you. We're gonna we're gonna have to keep in mind that the listeners can't see us like we can. Yes, C I U T eighty nine point five FM, the sound of your city. And this is the hashtag Love Your Radio donation drive. The hashtag Love Your Radio. You can call one eight 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 two zero four eight nine seven six to donate uh, via phone, but because of COVID, that'll be more difficult. So still try to go online, C A T dot FM. Let's get into the show, Dave. What do we got? It is a great station filled with great people, and this show, The Green Majority, is airing on Juneteenth which is an American holiday in uh, commemoration of June 19, 1865, when enslaved people in Texas were finally freed two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation. If you're in Toronto today, a Juneteenth sit-in on Bay Street is happening from noon to 6 p.m. between police headquarters and City Hall with a demand of abolishing the police. Speaking of the police... Brandy Morin reported last week for HuffPo on some of the indigenous response to Alberta's Bill 1, which, as we've mentioned before, is a broad ban on all protests at railways, pipelines, and oil sands sites, and pretty much anything the government wishes in the future to label critical infrastructure. Such infrastructure often runs directly through reserves. Morin quotes Grand Chief of the Treaty 8 First Nations of Alberta, author Arthur Noski, as saying that the bill was enacted as a direct response to Wet'suwet'en protests, and it will worsen relations between police and indigenous people, that it specifically targeted uh, specifically targeted against First Nation treaty partners in Canada who have collective inherent rights under treaty, and, quote, when people come together to protest, it's because of their collective rights. Noski stated that the bill abolishes reconciliation and effectively criminalizes the, quote, first peoples of this land who agreed to share the lands with foreigners that came in. Morin quotes Executive Director of Indigenous Climate Action, Ariel Doranger, as stating that it is fascist, anti-democratic, anti-civil rights, and completely annihilates the rights of indigenous communities. 
The bill has passed its third reading and is only waiting for the assent of the lieutenant governor to become law. Yeah, so I, I shared my thoughts about this this law last week at the end of the show. It's a, a truly scary law, but again, you've heard my thoughts. So I'll, I'll throw to you, Lauren, and then and then over to Saren. Yeah, um, I'm sure I'm not saying anything that, that wasn't touched on last week, but um, I think for listeners that might not sort of be familiar with it, this this bill is truly like the only word that comes to mind is 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 audacious. This is exactly what happens when our nation's largest lobbying body is is one that's oil and gas related. Is is cap is is what I'm referencing here. Um, this is one of those things that as I was reading about it, I was just sort of really confused initially because it's like, isn't our right to assemble peacefully a charter right? And of course, a quick Google tells you it is. It's uh, Charter Section 2C, the right to uh, freedom of peaceful assembly. And this bill flies in the face of that outright. And and I mean, obviously, it's, it's, <laughs> it's assuming that under a bill like this, just about anything could be misconstrued or, or argued to be, to be deemed critical infrastructure. But this list of pipelines and oil sand sites, et cetera, et cetera, is, is laughable and clearly cap endorsed. Um, and I think sort of, I, I don't know, my big takeaway from this is that we really, really, really need to see white settler um, activists and organizers and everyday people out in the streets engaging in, in direct civil disobedience in, in response to this act, because um, not only do we have to uphold the treaty rights of those nations that are being violated by this uh, by this bill, but we have to uphold and defend our charter right to peaceful assembly, because we've seen over the last few weeks with with everything that we're seeing come out of the states and the insurrections there, our right to peaceful assembly is is integral to a an even moderately functioning democracy. Um, so this is a really scary bill, um, and I'm glad we're talking about it today. I hope we continue to talk about it, and, and I hope we hear more people getting getting angry about it. To, to clarify, one quick thing: it includes streets. Streets are included as critical infrastructure, meaning that any protest could be criminalized. There's, it is, it is truly a, a scary bill. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's. It, I haven't heard a lot about legal challenges to it yet, but I, I do hope that those are coming. Well, and I think one of the things that we have to sort of use for context um, that's been lost so much in the in the last few years, especially with the the world being captivated by the car crash in slow motion that is Donald Trump and all our sets of norms are being changed to just have a little sense of history. What is the original protester in the modern sense? They're anti-war protesters. Is the military critical infrastructure? Sure. So any of these laws that are being applied are to lesser critical infrastructures. And I think that on that basis, I mean, if there isn't a lawyer somewhere that could make the case that you know, this law essentially outlaws protest, period. Um, give me a shot. I don't know. It's it's fundamentally undermines the entire purpose of it. It's like saying you're allowed to disagree, but only on the top of a mountain 30 miles away is not a right to disagree. Um, and I I can't um, imagine a legitimate court that would that would hold it. So it's really for me, and, and I'll admit I'm not being super aware of what's going on, but I'm, I think if not for the turmoil that's going on right now, people's hair would already be on fire. I mean, our right to protest is taken away based on whomever happens to be in federal office at the time deciding it should be so. 
Um, I've been, uh, as you know, I've been uh, sort of semi-incognito, uh, operating a little bit behind the scenes here. And part of the reason for that, I, you know, I'm not going to talk about it extensively, but I, I was uh, on Mark Torres last night talking about a whole bunch of personal decisions. But sort of suffice it to say that, um, you know, I'm undergoing a lot of personal change. And at the moment, it also happened to be almost perfectly timed with all of this stuff going on. Um, I started um, my process on HRT like three days after the, the lockdown happened. And so I've been watching this whole process from a sort of very interesting perspective of intense personal change while also witnessing this external personal change. And my reflection on that and how that relates to CIUT is, was two observations from watching, you know, this global movement, but primarily it's focused in the US um, and watching sort of two realizations come out, which was people realizing that they actually do have a power. And a subset of those people realizing that, you know, just real, realizing you have power isn't enough, you have to move towards something. And one of the things that I think that a recent look into all this sort of fresh look at racism has shown us and has revealed is just how much racism there is. And I think part of the problem has to be with the fact that we don't understand what that is. And so I think this is where this comes down to how we move forward. Just having people recognize that things are broken. Like we've been on this show for years and years and years telling people things are broken, things are broken. Um, in, a, in a sense, people understand the moment that things are broken because the whole system came crashing down. But that isn't going to be enough. That does create the seed for change. This was the first required component of major structural change. But part two comes now. Um, and that has to be to keep the spirit up. That has to be to keep pushing. And that has to be bold in what you ask for. Um, and that's why I support all of those movements, even though I personally wouldn't advocate for a literal, textual erasure of all police. Advocate for it advocate for it, push for everything, because now is the time that we're actually gonna get movement, now is the time that politicians are scared, and now is the time that we can do things. But the only way we can do them is with people power. And so I think that CIUT plays a really critical role in that because we've been sort of disaster monologuing for so long now. And I feel like we finally have the opportunity to not just be the, the, the sports casters of disaster, but actually rally for change. And that makes me really happy and excited but we need your help to do that. So please call in. Um, oh, the number just disappeared from in front of me. I'm sorry, Dave, would you jump in and share the number, please? The number is uh, 1-888-204-8976. Or uh, go, to, again, to the to the website is the best place at ciut.fm and click donate. That is the, the key place to do that, to allow CIUT to keep playing all of the shows that you hear, not just ours, every other show that you might hear on the radio, of course, is supported by CIUT. So you can donate there uh, today and throughout the rest of the time. Sarah. Yeah. So that just my the last thing was that this was you know I think we've we've asked I've personally asked for money on these airways about forty times now, um, but this was the first time I was asking with excitement and with some hope. Um, so please help us, but not so that we can keep telling you how terrible things are, so that we can actually take our part in moving things forward. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, on to the to the next story. So. The uh, Alberta Investment Management Corporation, or AIMCO, the investment company that manages Alberta's pension funds, is officially the proud co-owner of a majority stake in the Coastal GasLink pipeline. 
that badly needed this money to continue being constructed through sovereign indigenous Wet'suwet'en territory in BC. The deal was made alongside KKR, which is an, an American private equity firm that partnered with South Korea's public, pu- public pun- pension fund. So there are two public pension funds involved in the purchase. Uh, and KKR also happened to uh, recently bleed Toys R Us dry for a decade, uh, sucking hundreds of millions of dollars out of it while laying off 30,000 employees and loading it with debt, and it only agreed to pay those employees any severance after it was sued. That was KKR. But in Canada, around 400,000 Alberta pensioners rely on AIMCO, which controls 31 provincial pension and endowment funds worth about $119 billion. AIMCO also bought the Northern Courier Pipeline from the same company that runs Coastal GasLink a year ago, namely TC Energy. TC Energy, meanwhile, is not looking at a bright future since its credit rating was downgraded last year and is probably going to fall again soon. The deal provides the final $600 million needed to fully finance the project, And because it is a private equity investment, financial specifics do not have to be disclosed. AIMCO, which is disproportionately invested in Alberta, consistently underperforms other Canadian pension funds like the CPP and the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. Based on a report co-authored by Duncan Kinney, uh, Executive Director of Progress Alberta, AIMCO has lost millions investing in unprofitable oil and gas operations across the province. Zoe Yucker reports for the Narwhal that in some cases, quote, AIMCO bought oil and gas companies that went bankrupt just months later. It also lost as much as $4 billion, the CEO says it was only $2.1 billion, on risky stock market bets that went sour uh, when the pandemic hit a loss that American investment manager Brett Friedman called predictable and preventable. And while the funds are nominally insulated from political control, many of the companies AIMCO is invested in are financial supporters of the UCP. Now they own the Coastal GasLink project, which of course has been mired in political turmoil because it trespasses on Wet'suwet'en land. D.T. Cochran, an economist and postdoctoral researcher at York University, suggests charitably that AIMCO is miscalculating or unaware of the risks by failing to account for indigenous jurisdiction, even though the national rail blockades in protest of the pipeline over the winter were almost the only thing we were talking about in this country before COVID-19. Last fall, AIMCO was given control of $16 billion of the $16 billion uh, Alberta Teacher Pension Fund, which was protested by teachers and which the Alberta NDP are now trying to reverse. Member of the Alberta uh, Legislature, Christina Gray, argues that the UCP is creating a monopoly by concentrating all of Alberta's pension funds at AIMCO, eliminating the motivation for it to provide high returns. It can therefore continue to unprofitably prop up the oil and gas industry at the expense of Albertan pensioners and the world at large. Yeah, so we covered this story, I believe, last December when the deal was first announced that KKR and AIMCO were, were working on it. The The new addition here is the is a South Korean pension fund. And 
I should note that when we did that, one of the concerns that had happened right before that was this conversation around, are we going to use teachers' pensions funds, which at the time were making good returns as a way to prop up the oil and gas industry? And that came to pass, honestly, quicker than I think even the critics imagined it might. Um, And it should also be noted that this occurs uh, within days uh, of the Albertan government's fair deal plan. Uh, for a fair deal panel, which I believe released its information today or or yesterday, which included pulling out entirely of the Canadian pension plan, uh, as w- which despite significant warnings uh, from experts about how this will hurt the pensions of Albertans directly. Uh, so, but it's it's it does all connected to the to the attempts by the Kenny government to bring more money under AIMCO and then to use that money seemingly again. The actual law is that AIMCO is a is a is an arm's length uh, industry that is not actually directly connected to the Kenny government. However, you know the the purchasing of, of, of what we've seen has 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 maybe made that not so clear. Uh, but let me pass it on to uh, to Lauren. Um. Yeah. Uh, listeners, and I hate to be the annoying naggy lady coming from your, your car speaker right now, but if you have a pension fund, if you have an RRSP, if you plan on not working in your, in your golden years as you age, check to see what your portfolio looks like because there's a whole lot of Canadians, not only people in, um, in Alberta and actually not only Canadians, apparently a lot of, a lot of people in South Korea as well who are in for a rude awakening when it comes time to retire. There's this, there's this concept that we always used to talk about when I was a student um, divestment organizer and it's this this concept of of stranded assets and it's the idea that you're investing your money in something that you will never be able to cash in on down the line and this investment of these millions of dollars in people's pension monies that's an odd phrase i apologize um but this this pension investment in in such a carbon bomb in such a stranded asset in this pipeline that sure is is potentially money making now but isn't going to make you money 10 years 20 years 30 years 40 years from now when you're going to need those 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 uh, pension dollars to to fund your later years um it's dangerous it's careless it's short-sighted on the part of of aimco and the kenny government by extension um so so again if if i'm not being as eloquent as i should be check to see where your pension dollars and your retirement savings are invested um and 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 if they're invested in something like the oil and gas industry if they're invested in projects like the coastal gas link pipeline work like get together with your fellow workers and lobby and and fight and organize for your pension fund to be divested from the fossil fuel industry because it will not make you money when it comes time to retire. It might be making money now, your pension might be looking good now, but when you actually need to cash in on it and you actually need it to sustain you day to day, it might not do that for you. Um, And the same goes for people who have independent RRSPs. There are fossil free mutual funds available at a lot of mainstream banks, if you don't have access to a van city or you don't have access to, to somebody who can develop a private portfolio for you, there are lots of alternatives to investing your money in the fossil fuel industry. Um, and although it's important that we that we lobby large firms and universities and churches to divest, it's really important for you as an individual person to make sure you're not opening yourself up to risk like that. 
Yeah, and if you want to get involved in that, one organization working on that is called shiftaction.ca. Uh, they're working to shift pension funds. So you can check them out. Uh, to you, Saren, and then we'll we'll come back. Yeah, um, I think I'll just say something really quickly about the stock market. So I've been watching the stock market um, pretty carefully, not as, a, as someone who's invested in it, but just the high-level news for a while. And one of the things I've really noticed and observed during this COVID experience is that um, investors as a class are really stupid, uh, like really dumb, like really, really dumb. Um, so like we'd see news and we'd be like, oh, well, obviously, because I'm a person who's capable of reading the news and I know what the physicians are saying, I know that there's a two week delay between infections and uh, it possibly being noticed. But all of a sudden, the stock market, they're like, oh, infections went down. Okay. And it went, you know, and it triples in value. And then two weeks later, when the exact same thing that we knew exactly would happen, like, oh my God, things are crashing again and it comes down again. Um, so, my comment on that is um, I think we can do better than having the pinnacle of our economic system be a casino. But in the meantime, uh, call Tim Nash and reinvest your money um, because the people who are running this stuff, uh, you know, they're, they're not brilliant, they're not even necessarily smart. Um, they're just well-connected and sometimes lucky, and they make enough bets that the good ones f often outweigh the bad ones. But these aren't brilliant masters of the universe. They're just idiots, like regular idiots, um, except that they have a whole lot more power than you. And I think we, I think we can have a conversation, and this is all done about rating that in a little bit. Just a really, really quick note and a reminder that um, that on this episode today, we're asking you, we're imploring you to support CIUT and uh, community radio with, with your dollars today. Um, so little of our media is independent anymore. If you're listening to radio that isn't explicitly community radio like CIUT, it's likely corporate, bottled, potentially hosted by Ryan Seacrest. Um, I know there's a whole lot of radio stations across the country right now that are 
at one point were independent and are now run by iHeartRadio, which functions out of California. And that's why you get Ryan Seacrest saying like, good morning, London, blah, 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 blah. Ryan Seacrest isn't in London, Ontario, putting that out there right now. Um, and, and, and if we're not sort of joking about iHeartRadio, there's like a real, real issue in Canada when it comes to media. Post media has a stranglehold on our news right now. Um, if you're looking out east, uh, organizations like Saltwire have a lot of newspapers and radio stations in their back pocket. And if they don't, it's the Irvings, which if you're not from the East Coast, you might not be familiar, but they are quite literally a resource extraction industry. They specialize in logging and um, and uh, uh, oil refineries out East. Um, so, so these are the type of people that are in charge of our corporate media right now and are in charge of storytelling and and disseminating information to our public. Um, and, and by no means, I know <laughs> Green Majority, we never profess to be journalists here, but um, we, we do take time. And I know all the shows on CIUT, we, we take time and we take care to make sure that we're being careful in our storytelling and we're being honest and we're speaking to the communities we come from in, in careful and conscientious ways. Um, and in order to continue to do that, in order to to continue to support our communities in this grassroots way, we, we, we do need to, to implore you and ask you for money right now. It's something we only do a couple times a year, um, but especially uh, in the last few months, it's been tough on everybody and that, that includes public radio. So if you want to uh, continue to hear shows like The Green Majority and others on CIUT, if you wanna support community, community-based media, community-based storytelling and journalism, um, please, uh, you can call in to 1-888-204-8976 or check out ciut.fm. Uh, there's a donation link in the top left-hand corner uh, and you can check that out. Um, and if you want to spread the word on social media, that would be super appreciated as well. Uh, use the hashtag loveyourradio. Thanks so much, folks. Yes, there are, there are many ways to donate, uh, including sharing. Uh, if you can't afford it, by all means, please share. If I can just add a silly note to that as well, um, while you're at it, um, also delete Joe Rogan's podcast from your playlist. That man has no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> uh, on to the next story. Okay, so Judith Lavoie reported on the 5th of June for the Narwhal how logging is increasing dramatically in BC with an unprecedented amount of new logging uh, opening up in an area called Elphinstone and new cut blocks planned for auction at the high-altitude Dakota Ridge, which is home to some of Canada's oldest trees, including one that is wider than the oldest tree ever recorded in the country. <clears throat> the tree was logged in the 1980s and was over 1,800 years old. And this other tree that is up for logging now is probably even older. The, air is all, the area is also an unofficial bear sanctuary. Lavoie quotes Elphinstone logging focus director Hans Penner as saying, quote, We have three scientific studies clearly showing that Dakota Ridge has very high natural and cultural values that wildly supersede any small financial gain from destroying it. Large trees, meaning those old trees, and trees that bear cultural importance and bear dens are supposed to be and will be buffered with a minimum 10-meter reserve, according to the Ministry of Forests, once the logging begins. My only comment on this, uh, which was obviously snarky, is 10 meters? Really? 10 meters? What is it, social distancing for ecosystem support? This is obviously not good. Like, ecosystems... Everyone knows that bears don't charge any more than 10 meters. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly, yeah. 
Yeah, as long as long as there's a ten meter radius around the oldest tree in at least North America and also bear dens, I'm sure no ecosystem damage will be done. This is like I it is it's mind boggling. But uh, to you for comments. Yeah, um, I think we in Canada at least. Uh, so-called Canada, forget that these old growth logging battles are still very much raging um, and that there's still so much old growth forest worth fighting for. Um, I I think obviously the movements are different now than they were uh, in the 90s. Potentially, it's not so much like the tree huggers versus the union boys or the teamsters anymore, but there are still many groups to name a couple like Wilderness Committee or dogwood who are who are working really really hard to preserve these ecosystems and and obviously working with and taking leadership from the indigenous communities and the, the indigenous nations which in in many cases in BC never ceded their land never engaged in treaty um in, in treaty with with the with the federal state of Canada um, and, and still have ownership over that land, still have people living on that land in in very real, very tangible ways. Um, and uh, Anyway, it's <laughs> there's still a lot of people working really, really hard to save these ecosystems, and these are ecosystems which we know we require to survive. Um, and I think I think a lot of people assumed that the battle was either sort of like won and put to rest in the '90s, and it's something we don't have to worry about, or alternatively that there is no old growth forest left. So therefore, why bother? But there's still <laughs> but there's still a lot there worth fighting for. Um, and and we need to be focusing on this. And unfortunately. Um, Frankly, uh, something I was thinking about uh, while I was reading about this story, uh, what came to mind is is Minister Wilkinson's two billion trees that he professed he was going to have planted in the name of climate change. And frankly, those two billion new baby trees mean nothing if we've completely lost our old growth forest, because we know that uh, that a 1,000 year old tree is going to sequester a gazillion times the amount of carbon that a new baby tree planted in, in, in as much good faith as is possible to plant a new tree. That that little tree is going to take so long to sequester the amount of carbon or to, to foster the number of organisms and to foster a healthy ecosystem the way an already existing old growth tree will. So um, those two billion new trees that that Trudeau and Wilkinson and McKenna were talking about mean nothing if we don't save our old growth forest. You know, you know what the what the old saying goes, you know, when was the right time to plant a tree? 1800 years ago. That's the right time to have planted a tree and for it to still be alive. Uh, Let's let's jump onto Ontario water and then come back. So Colin Butler reported for the CBC last month that uh, Doug Ford's environmental cutbacks could lead Ontario towards another drinking water tragedy, like what happened in Walkerton 20 years ago, where seven people died and 2,000 fell sick from E. coli poisoning, caused in part by the privatization of water testing. Butler quotes Walkerton survivor Bruce Davidson, as saying, quote, let's remember that Walkerton was tipped from a system that was limping to a system that was lethal after a 50-year flood, uh, flood event with extreme weather. Doug Ford, meanwhile, cut provincial flood control in half last year, has used the pandemic as excuse to end public environmental consultation, has done his best to exacerbate climate change, which will increase flooding. Butler lists his environmental moves as follows. 
Ford, quote, eliminated cap-and-trade, softened Ontario's carbon emissions targets, reduced funding to the Ministry of National Resources and Forestry, including forest firefighting, reduced funding for the Ministry of the Environment, Conservation and Parks, cancelled hundreds of green energy contracts, fought the federal carbon tax in court and through a gas pump sticker campaign, and allowed developers and cities to sidestep endangered species protection by paying into a trust. The provincial government also tried to allow developers to ignore safe drinking water protection rules that came out of the Walkerton tragedy, but they were stopped when communities up uh, rejected it, protested it. And as Kelsey Scarfoni points out for environmental defense, quote, First Nations and private water wells are not covered by protections. Nearly 18% of Ontarians get their drinking water from private wells. These are still susceptible to threats like the contamination that occurred in Walkerton. Yeah, so to, to jump off actually something that Lauren said earlier in the show around the, the need for independent, uh, independent news and independent journalism, the, some incredible work and some of the most consistent work on covering the rollbacks and the concerns around environmental has been done by a friend of the show, Emma McIntosh, uh, who, from the National Observer. So before or after you, uh, actually, let's go with after, you go on CIUT.FM and donate to support, uh, support us and in the, in the great radio station that we, that we support. Uh, also, hop over to National Observer and hit subscribe because, you know, we pull a lot of stories from them. We learn a lot from the reporting that they do. And it's an ecosystem that makes this possible. Uh, and in a central part of that, of course, is this radio station that that makes it all makes it all happen. Uh, and I'm going to presume that during this time, some of you have already donated. So if you've donated in the last 40-ish minutes or so, thank you so much. Uh, and please, if you haven't yet, you still have time to be thanked by me at the end of the show. Uh, but let's throw to you, Lauren. Yeah, just really, really quickly on this one. Um, I think remembering the Walkerton disaster, which was which was something that happened in my lifetime. I, I know I look young and beautiful, but I'm old enough to remember when Walkerton happened. Um, and and I think it just really, really goes to show how into like integrate in. Oh my goodness how deeply connected we are as a society to uh, to the ecosystems we rely on and how little has to go wrong in order for disaster to occur. Um, and Walkerton was a really, really good example of that. So we have to make sure that, that those policies that were put in place to prevent that from happening again are strong and are supported by the politicians that we elect. But also we do have to acknowledge that Walkerton was terrible. Walkerton resulted in the deaths of, of I think, something like seven or eight people. But we also need to remember that uh, for decades, now um, all across Ontario, all across so-called Canada, there are indigenous communities that have been lacking access to clean water for years now. Um, so it just goes to show that that even sort of uh, the 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 best intended policy, like the Clean Water Act, uh, still isn't necessarily designed to work for everyone. So even though we do need to uphold those policies, we also need to figure out ways that they can work better for everyone. So um, no, I mean I just think this. Um, I think it it. Well, my sarcastic comment first, because even though I'm softer, I'm still sarcastic. Um, so I wasn't I just finished hearing about what an amazing job Ford was doing with all this, like he's handling the COVID so well. Um, yeah, no, he's not actually. Um, it's just not as bad as the Americans. But more importantly, I think this really like this, this for me is part of the thing that drills down to where we go from uh, electing the right leaders to political revolution, because our system is simply not designed to allow our politics to deal with these types of problems. 
It, it just isn't. They're, they're incentivized to create problems like this. Um, and so I would, I could, and perhaps another time I would, you know, rail on Rob Ford and the dangers of capitalism and all those things. But I mean, at the end of the day, uh, my, my, my comment and my takeaway for today is this just means we need change, um, fundamental change, not just new Welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. Continuing this show, this fundraising show, hashtag love your radio drive from CIUT. You can donate at CIUT.FM. There's a big button right in the top right there on a brand new website. You can sort of scroll and see everything else that's going on. And we would greatly appreciate any donation, large or small. And if you can't, that's totally appreciated too. Please share the posts and and, and interact with us on social media uh, because every little dollar helps to get us to the $10,000 goal. Thank you so much, everyone. On to the news. All right. So moving on to the U.S. now. The Californian utility Pacific Gas and Electricity, or PG&E, has, in an unprecedented plea deal, pled guilty to 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter because its equipment helped spark the massive wildfires in 2018. The company has therefore admitted to killing 84 people. They will be fined millions of dollars, but no one will be going to jail, and the chief executive of the company, Bill Johnson, sat in the court uh, as the judge read the names of each person killed. He then apologized to the families in what the BBC has called a highly unusual U.S. corporate acknowledgement of criminal wrongdoing. The BBC also reports that the company has been sparking blazes since 2015, and some of the survivors think that the state is being soft on the company, which has, quote, already committed to settle claims from insurers and local government agencies for more than $25 billion, which includes a $13.5 billion settlement with fire victims. The company was also held liable for an explosion in 2010 and was the target of the famous case that Aaron Brockovich helped bring against them in the 90s. Yeah, so we discussed this last year, actually, when they were using this the lawsuit or, or the, their, their bankruptcy filing as a reason why they were subjecting uh, Californians to the, to, to the intermittent brownouts, losing power every, every once in a while, uh, because they were concerned of literally causing more fires, which sort of speaks to the concept of maybe in, they should have fixed the stuff instead of just refusing services to a group of constituents that have no other options. But that's just me. Uh, to you, Laura. 
Yeah, uh, just really, really quickly. Um, I think something we do need to remember in this case is that uh, PG&E is a publicly owned utility. So to me, what this tells us is that um, although I've, I've been one to sort of claim it in the past, straight up nationalization um, and making things like our utilities public isn't a silver bullet answer to all of our problems going forward, especially in an era of climate change. Although I very much advocate for uh, a publicly owned utility, uh, something that the taxpayers have some control over and the federal government has some oversight over. It's, it's, not, it's not the be all end all. What we still need to do is make sure that um, corners aren't being cut uh, in the name of saving dollars, uh, that we're prioritizing people and communities and health and safety of, of the communities that are served, but also the workers who do that work um, over, over, the, over the bottom line of, of the corporation, whether it's a crown corporation or, or a privately owned one. Um, because like I said, especially in a world of warming, uh, hazards and disasters are more frequent and more dangerous. Um, and in a world of warming, all industries are going to need to shift their focus of their operations and, and behave with far more care and far more mind paid to mitigating disastrous effects and adapting to things like, I don't know, a longer and more intense fire season. Um, yeah, that's sort of my main takeaway from this story, uh, is that, is that we, we need to be demanding more of our corporations, regardless of who of who is collecting the money from that corporation. Yeah, for sure. There's actually been interesting studies done around that's in fact some private utility public utilities are actually taking more time. Uh, Saren, last that last last thoughts. Yeah, really quickly. Um, I my comments will be inferred from two thing two statements. Um, the Weston family, the people who own. Uh, the giant bread conglomerate and a number of other things posted record profits this year and just cut all the benefit pay for all of their employees during COVID. Um, and numbers I saw literally today on my way back from the hospital on a news ticker from like the, the Law Census Bureau or something like that was that the 1% in Canada now has over 25% of all wealth. Congratulations. Welcome back to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 
FM, the sound of your city that has been going on for how many years? I don't know how many years. Many years. Decades on decades on decades. And currently run by the indomitable, the indubitable, the unflappable, the untouchable, the irredeemably excellent, the inimitable Ken Stauer. And uh, this is the iHeartRadio fundraising drive. Love your radio. <laughs> iHeartRadio is a corporate This radio is the vision. Ryan Seacrest <laughs> fundraising drive for CIUT 89.5 FM. If you could donate to Ryan, uh, that would be great for all of us at CIUT.FM. Is that right? Brand spanking new website where you can just pluck in those dollars, plug in those dollars because it is a community radio station and uh, it's a very good one and it gives excellent programming and that's pretty much that. Uh, you could also call in, of course, uh, but uh, only Ken will be there, so the the lines are rather tied, and it is preferred that uh, if you care to do so, you would do so online. Um, yes, if you want to call, it's one eight 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 two zero four eight nine seven six, and any donation of any amount is, of course, uh, appreciated. Eighty nine fifty gets you a membership. More There are more benefits you can learn online, but if you can't afford to donate, that is also, please keep listening and sharing uh, on social media. That is also very helpful. Any contribution is greatly appreciated to you, Dave, for the next story. Um, can I have that number one more time? The number is one eight 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 two zero four eight nine seven six. All right. And uh, <clears throat> turning on now to meat. So COVID outbreaks in the U.S., Meatpacking plants are still growing, and 89 meatpackers have died so far in that country, as, tr- as Trump has ordered plants to stay open. The industry has also warned of meat shortages, even while meat exports are reaching new highs. And uh, these meat processing, processing plants, of course, have become the, some of the worst hotspots for COVID transmission, with hundreds of outbreaks, thousands of workers infected, and now 89 dead, in the U.S., it can't be emphasized too strongly, of course, that these same workers have, in many cases, been forced to wear diapers or urinate on themselves on the job because they're denied bathroom breaks. Hundreds of meat processors in uh, in Ireland as well have been been infected, and Germany has announced reforms to its meat industry in the wake of its own outbreaks. For workers, close contact occurs not only at the plant but also at home where overwhelmingly immigrant workforces uh, often share cramped living spaces. Migrant workers, of course, face multiple forms of exploitation, whether Eastern Europeans in Ireland and England or Latinx and Caribbean workers in the U.S. and Canada. These workers are as much as six times more likely to die of COVID than the average worker. As Mr. Jonathan Safran Foer writes for the Washington Post, quote, Across the U.S., people of color comprise grossly, a grossly disproportionate share of essential service workers, such as bus drivers, postal workers, food deliverers, and, of course, slaughterhouse workers. These jobs rarely offer paid sick leave and never allow for remote working. We often hear that people of color are putting themselves at greater personal risk during this pandemic, but the truth is they are being put at greater risk. White people generate 97% of all income from the operation of farms. Yet Latinx farmers alone comprise more than 80% of farm laborers. 
The fact that the overwhelming majority of people who will suffer from Trump's slaughter order are black and brown, and that the overwhelming majority of the executives who pleaded with him to do it are white, cannot be ignored. In Sorry, I have more. Oh, I have on. more. In addition, many experts believe that the continuous expansion of industrialized agriculture into wildlife areas is responsible for the initial transmission of COVID from bats to humans, probably through an intermediary food animal. In an article published at the end of March, researchers Rob Wallace, Alex Liebman, Luis Fernando Chavez, and Roderick Wallace laid out in detail the connections between agribusinesses and disease epidemics, from E. coli and salmonella to the current pandemic. They write, quote, ecosystems in, in which such wild viruses were in part controlled by the complexity uh, of the tropical forest are being drastically streamlined by capital-led deforestation, and on the other end of peri-urban development, by deficits in public health and environmental sanitation. Then, of course, there are the environmental impacts of the meat industry, such as pollution, deforestation, massive water and fossil fuel consumption, and widespread destruction of biodiversity. Solutions to the current public health crisis, therefore, align with social and environmental policies from the protection of wilderness to the abolition of the meat industry as it is currently organized, to migrant and worker rights, and a more equitable share uh, social contract between workers and agro-capital. So two two quick things on this. The first is that uh, today, actually, this is, of course, Wednesday, uh, June 17th, the the Ontario legislature has passed an ag, uh, ag what's called an ag-gag law, Bill 156, which, uh, according to Animal Justice, would basically make it much more difficult uh, for people to to whistleblow on, on on farms. It would it would prevent the ability to sort of declare to declare animal cruelty and other types of things in regards to farms. And so, what is already a sort of not so transparent industry is only getting more difficult, at least here in Ontario. That's in Ontario? Yeah, it's in Ontario. Who are these people making these laws? They're like, yeah, let's keep doing all the bad stuff and make sure nobody can talk about it. Yeah, uh, the, the well, Doug Ford, as previously said, is not doing so great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other thing to, to mention about the previous concept, about how incredibly dangerous and how much we are, we are putting on uh, migrant workers, uh, the, Mexico has actually gone as far as pausing sending temporary foreign workers to Canada because of COVID-19 deaths. Canada is doing such a poor job that that Mexico is actually saying that they would not actually send because 300 Mexicans working in Canada are infected right now. And so this is, uh, you know, this is actually the, the country being like, it is not safe to do this. We're, we're not actually allowing this to happen. So it's it's truly, a, it should be what is a, as a national shame, to be perfectly honest. Damn. So they come to Canada and we're like, hmm. We're going to give you the worst conditions possible, not protect you from the disease. And Mexico's like, we don't want to send your workers anymore. Yeah, it could mean as many as 5,000 temporary foreign workers expected to arrive in Canada uh, in the coming months uh, are may not come because of how poorly Canada is treating the migrant workers who are here. Hmm. All right, so we're just going to end off this thing with uh, a nice little uh, point by Chris Moray, our contributor who's arguing that uh, there's no point in thinking that uh, this COVID pandemic is going to make us like nature more uh, because, well, we're going to need more leisure time 
to continue appreciating it, which, you know, who knows if that's going to happen. So he writes, following stay-at-home orders, lockdowns, and work stoppages, many in the media have been seizing on the lull in urban life to wax poetic about the virtues of noticing nature. Lucy Jones from The Guardian argues that noticing nature is the greatest gift you can get from the lockdown, describing the positive psychological benefits of being in and around nature. Though cautioning against celebration, uh, given the tragic and ongoing effects of the crisis, many environmentalists are optimistic that this burst of nature enthusiasm will lead to greater long-term concern for the environment. Journalist Gabby Hinsloff writes that, quote, one of the few things to emerge with any clarity from muddled government messages about the next phase is that the outdoors will become much more important to us because that's where the first signs of normal life will return. In Ontario, for instance, parks and garden centers were the first sites of reopening. Now, it's easy to believe that our forced break from the punch clock will lead to a growth of environmental consciousness. People uh, probably already loved nature, though. Uh, as evidenced by a booming houseplant industry, a booming wellness industry, a cultural obsession with mindfulness, and overcrowded parks and beaches even amid a deadly pandemic. Perhaps the key to this misunderstanding, writes Chris, lies in the assumption reiterated by both Jones and Hinsloff that noticing nature is basically free. But noticing nature is in fact not free, because to enjoy nature you need time. And time is precisely what has been forced upon the millions of workers who have been laid off because they cannot work from home. As much as it is nice to imagine that the the pandemic will lead to a greater appreciation for nature, and therefore to greater support for environmental policy, this appreciation cannot express itself without a proportionate increase in leisure time. Yeah, so... That this has been our show. Thanks so much for listening. We've, as you can seen, have gone through a complete wide range of stories, anywhere from you know a Californian bankrupt uh, energy utility all the way to the concept of whether or not we'll notice nature more in the environment. And I think what that, if I can close with a thought, I think what's important is that the fact that we can cover this wide range and, 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 and do so is only available because of the fact that CIUT allows us to do this and keeps allowing us to be on air. And so if you now have, uh, if you have donated already, please uh, accept my heartfelt thanks. If you are still looking to donate, the, the, the music to end the show are about to play. It's a great time to hop on your computer, go to CIUT.FM and donate there. And thank you all so much for being with us and have a wonderful, wonderful day. Oh,